Good to see everybody this morning. We are going to take our Bibles and go to the book of Hebrews. If you would like to join me there. Chapter number nine. This morning's sermon will be a second part of last week's sermon. And we'll be looking at several different passages of Scripture this morning. Um, specifically, verse 1 through 10 is where we'll read. And then we'll be kind of just doing a Bible study this morning, going through Scripture. I had a few questions this week about um, some of the thoughts from last week. And so I wanted to kind of expound a little bit, uh, try to go a little bit further in regards to showing the um, similarities between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and how the author of Hebrews um, shows us those similarities and then ultimately points us to the fulfillment in Christ. And so that will be our our goal this morning, our journey. And we will, um, Lord willing, try to get to those last two points of last week's message um, specifically, but we'll, we'll kind of see how the Lord leads and, and how much time we have as well. So um, chapter 9 and verse number 1, the Bible says, Now even the first covenant had, regu- had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. And just if you just stop there for just a moment, um, this is really the basis of what we're going to talk about. The, the emphasis here is, is that the new covenant has... Um, regulations for worship as well as earthly places of holiness. And, and it is, it's connecting those two together. It's making a, a comparison that this, the, the old covenant had these as well. And so we shouldn't be surprised that the new covenant has these because the old covenant has these as well. And then it's going to go on to, to describe for us in the next nine verses the the requirements for entering into God's presence for worship. And, and then after that, it's going to actually go into the new covenant and describe the new covenant and how we enter into fellowship and worship uh, to God through and in the new covenant. So let's describe the old covenant here in 2 through 10. He says, For a tent, a tabernacle was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is, also, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the ta- tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail." Verse 6 says, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second section only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood. The second section, if you remember, is called the Holy of Holies or the Holiest Place, and this is where um, mankind was truly meeting with God. All of the other ceremonies that took place in the holy place and then even in the outer courts, all of those things were preparation for mankind once a year to enter into the presence of God and to to have a a season, if you will, of fellowship with him. It's interesting that um, this only happened once a year. It was the only time that man was able to commune or fellowship with God in 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 a... 
face-to-face type of a way, and it was only done through a representative. In, in other words, not everyone could go in there. If you wanted to have fellowship with God and under the old covenant, you had to go through the high priest, right? The high priest went in and he had fellowship with God for you, in a sense. So, so only the high priest could enter into the to the intimate presence of God and fellowship with him, but he did it as a representation of all of the Jewish people. It's important to remember that because we're going to connect it right to the new covenant. It's going to make sense in the new covenant and how that we can only come into the presence of God through and in a representative. And who is our representative? Okay, Jesus Christ is our representative. Okay, so we want to make that connection um, the Bible says he goes in once a year and he does, does it without taking, he doesn't go in without taking blood with him, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age. In other words, as long as there is still a veil, Okay, as long as there's still a veil between the first section and the, and the second section, okay, the, the second section is not open because the first section is still, we're still being active in the outside ceremonies, so therefore we don't have access to God. And we'll, we'll see that that has been removed when Christ Jesus died, he, he rent the veil, God rent the veil in two from top to bottom, which was just simply symbolic of God was the one renting it and not man. And now you have no, you have no necessity for the outer, uh, the holy place, right? Because man is able to enter into the presence of God because the veil has been rent in two. What's interesting, let me just make this comment. It's interesting because in the outer veil, you had the, you had the, um, the table of showbread, right? And you had the, the candles, the seven different candles that lit the room. That was the only light that you had in the room. And then you had the altar of innocence, which is the prayer of the saints. All three of those things are fulfilled by whom? Who is the light of the world? Jesus. Who is the bread of life? Jesus. And who is the, who is the one who intercedes on our behalf? Jesus. So if we have Jesus... Do we, do we need that outer court? Do we need that, the holy place any longer? If we have Jesus living inside of us, that means that those candles are inside of us. That means that that bread is inside of us. That means that the water of life is inside of us. So we no longer need the holy place. And that's why the, that's why the veil in the, of the temple could be rent in two because you no longer needed the holy place because the holy place is now in, 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 in us because it is in Christ. So we can enter into the holy of holies now because we have all of the outer or the holy place um, ceremonies have been fulfilled. They've been satisfied by Christ. He is those things ultimately. And now that he's inside of us, we don't have to go through those ceremonies. We can now enter directly into the holy of holies. But it's it's so important that we understand this. We only enter into the Holy of Holies if we come in, in Christ. In John 14, 6, if anybody, um, no man can come to the Father unless they come through Christ, right? I am the way, the truth, you guys know the verse. 
No one comes to the Father. So the only way that we can enter, so, so, so here's something that's very, very key. As, as we enter into God's presence, we enter into God's presence through Christ, and we're received. There are times in our life, even as Christians, that we try to enter God's presence through our flesh, and we don't, we don't experience acceptance. We, 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 we don't experience the same as we do. That's why the Bible says, walk in the, walk in the spirit, walk in the spirit, and you'll not fulfill the desires of the flesh. That's why this call is constantly throughout the New Testament of living in, walking in, um, manifesting the works of the spirit, because as we walk in the spirit, we're walking in whose spirit? It's the spirit of Christ. And we're in Christ, and therefore we, we find favor, we find acceptance, we find all of those wonderful benefits by being in Christ, who is our perfect representation. If we come in our flesh, we, find, we, we don't find that same favor. And, and obviously we know that we can't, once you're saved, you're in Christ. But there's, there is something about being in Christ and then also accessing the Father in Christ. It's something about walking in Christ, not entering in. If I, if I come to the Lord, even after I'm saved, and I say to the Lord, Lord, please receive me because I, I did my offerings this week, and I went to church this week, and I did this this week, I'm coming to him in my flesh. It doesn't change that I'm saved, but it, but it does change the reception that I'm going to experience in that moment. He goes on to say, um, well, which is symbolic for the age to come. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worker, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Let me say this and we'll get in, I'll pray and then we'll get into the sermon. This last phrase here, this last verse is not meant to say that it's, it only, it, it's, not, it's not meant to minimize the the old covenant. It's basically saying the old covenant is meant to deal with external things. It's meant to deal with washings and food, and it's meant to deal with external things. So it's not minimizing that. What he's saying is, is the old covenant has an effect on external things. But what he's going to say in the future is that the new covenant has effect on internal things. So he's going to say that how much greater, if the old covenant can affect the external things, can cause people to, to have you know, washings and be clean externally, if the old covenant can clean food, if the old covenant can clean the flesh, if the old covenant can clean up your life by rules and regulations, how much more powerful is the new covenant that can clean up your, he says here, it's unable to change your conscience, Right? But the new covenant is that much more powerful because in the same way that the old covenant can clean you up on the outside, the new covenant can clean you up on the inside. The old covenant can do external cleansing. The new covenant does internal cleansing. Okay, so let's, let me, let's pray together and we're going to um, try to unfold this. Father, um, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truths that we receive from it. I pray I pray that you would please be with us today as we seek to unfold these truths. Um, please give wisdom. Please give protection. Guard us from error. Um, please give understanding. And um, 
May your wisdom be seen and heard and our lives be changed because of it. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. So what I want to do this morning is continue our look again at the similarities between the Old Testament and the, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant for the purpose of understanding the requirements of entering into God's presence, which we call worship. The requirements for entering into God's presence are not different between the two covenants. Okay, They're not different between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And we'll look at why. This will lead us to reverence for God and worship, and it will motivate us, it will motivate individuals into a faith relationship with Jesus Christ, which is truly the meaning of what we call the Old Covenant or the First Covenant. The the true essence of the First Covenant was to lead people into a relationship with Christ. We'll look at that as well. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. So when it says to let us offer to God acceptable worship, the implication is is we can offer to God unacceptable worship. And then he says you offer to God acceptable worship by worshiping God with what? With reverence and awe. This is, a, this is a, a serious form of worship, a sober form of worship, okay? I think of this place, when I think of church, and I think of coming to church on Sunday morning, I think of this as a place of worship, right? Would you guys consider this a place of worship, where the body of Christ can come together and be in a place of worship? So the question I ask myself each week as I prepare my own heart for coming into this place is, is do I, am I bringing with me a heart of worship, Am I entering into a place of worship with a heart of worship? And the reality of it is, is when we come into a place of worship where God's presence is known, and we come with, when we come with bitterness, and we come with anger, and we come with frustration, and we come with discontentment, and we come with pride, and we come with all of these things, we're, are, are we bringing with us a heart of worship? Do we really have reverence and awe for entering into the presence of God? We don't really have... Pre- reverence and awe for entering into the presence of God. When we come to him with hearts and attitudes that are obviously not what he desires of us. When we enter into the presence of God for worship, we should understand what he expects in worship. And we should offer to him, according to Hebrews 12 and verse 28 and 9, we should offer to him worship that is, that is a reverential worship and worship that is in awe of who God is. Um, and you, could, you can put, and in scriptures used on other cases, the word fear and trembling. Pass your time on this earth in fear and trembling. And you, can, you could almost interchange these ideas, these words, because of the fact that that is reverence and awe. And it's not talking about a fear that is opposed to God, a fear of this world, a fear of the opinions of men, a fear of failure. It's not talking about those types of fears. It's talking about a fear and awe, a reverence for, for who God is. When you enter into the presence of someone, even, of, even from a human perspective, you enter into the presence of someone of great power and great authority, there's a level of reverence there, right? Even from a human perspective, you enter into the presence of a, of a CEO. I, I had, we had dinner with my, my brother-in-law last night, and he just got a job at 
at Google, and I asked him, have you met the boss yet? And he says, no, and I hope I don't either. And uh, he, he, he kind of get this, like, this awe that he would have, this, this reverence, this fear that he would have for, for being even in the presence of somebody of such great um, earthly power and authority, right? Think about the fact that when we come to worship God, we are entering into the presence of a God that is, that is transcendent of all of his creation. So you take the most powerful being on the face of the earth and you put them in comparison to God, and they just look really small and insignificant. So, so what, what does that mean, Pastor John? It means this, that when we come into the presence of God, if we really understand what, what's happening in that moment, if we really understand that moment and what's happening, we, we enter in with reverence. We enter into his presence with awe. We enter into his presence with respect. We enter into his presence with, with an attitude that is reflective of, of his person and what he deserves. So, so we want to drive that. We want to drive that home. That's what the Old Testament was all about. Once a year, entering into the presence of God, not without all of these things happening previous to getting in the presence of God. And when they enter into the presence of God, not without entering with a great deal of reverence and fear. And only for a, for a very short period of time did they enter into God's presence because it was such an extraordinary experience, they really, really took it seriously. And, and, and we should as well. So we want to understand the, the package here. We want to remember this about the two covenants, okay? The goal of both covenants is to restore fellowship with God. And we go back to the Garden of Eden and why God created men was to have fellowship with God Man's sin distorted that. God gives us a covenant. He gives us a way, if you will, a means by which we can be restored into fellowship with God. Now, truly, that's, what, that's one of the graces of God. Do you, know, do you know that none of us deserve to be in fellowship with God? None of us deserve to commune with God. None of us deserve, none of us can tell God, you owe us fellowship. Because, because ultimately, we are in our fallen humanity, what we deserve is for God to judge us, to separate himself from us forever. But he desires to fellowship with his people so much that he creates a way through which we can have fellowship with him. Okay, So the, so the, the goal of the two covenants is that we can be in fellowship with God and the requirement, okay, the requirement of both covenants is perfection. The requirement of both covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant, the requirement is perfection. So I want you to remember that because it's important as we even look at the old covenant. If the requirement to enter into the presence of God through the old covenant was perfection, how did the high priest enter? Because the high priest was not perfect. The Bible says that no one is perfect. If the requirement to enter into God's presence is perfection, how did the high priest enter into God's presence? And the answer is simple, by grace. By grace. The same way that we enter into the presence of God today is the same way that they entered into the presence of God then. It hasn't changed. It's, it's visibly different to us. It's visibly different to us, but it's not different. It's the same. Matthew 5.48 says, You therefore must be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. 
The requirement to enter into God's presence is perfection. And what we know is that no one, right, no one has ever attained to that except Jesus. No one has ever attained to that. So remember this. No one other than Adam and Eve and Jesus has ever entered into God's presence outside of grace. No one has ever entered into God's presence outside of grace. Grace is the epitome. Grace is the essence of anybody being ever accepted by God. So let's go on. Turn with me to chapter number 8. We're going to walk through for a few minutes the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We're going to start with the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant in Hebrews is referred to as a copy or a shadow of the new. Okay? The old covenant is called a copy or a shadow of the new. Romans or Romans Hebrews 8 um, verses 3. The Bible says for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if we were on earth, he would have not been a priest at all since these priests, since they, these are priests who offer gifts according to the law, and they serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. Okay, so we see that the old covenant, the old covenant is a copy or a shadow of the what I'm going to call, and we'll look at it more in detail, the Old Covenant is a copy or a shadow of the true covenant. Okay? The eternal covenant. We'll look at that here in a little bit. Colossians 2.17 says it this way, talking about the same thing, about the ceremonies and the sacrifices and the, the Old Covenant things. He says, these are shadows of the things to come, but the substance, okay, shadows... And the substance, the substance means the real thing, and the shadows is a reflection of the substance. So the substance, it says, is Christ. So the, the shadow is all these ceremonies and all of these sacrifices and all of these things are, are shadows, but the substance, which is the real thing, okay, right? It's interesting if you think about it, though. The substance is casting the shadow, Right? But what do we hear about first? We hear about the shadow first, don't we? We get really a reflection of the shadow. If you think about it, we get the shadow first, and we get the, we get the, the, the substance later. But it's, it's really the, the substance is first, and the shadow is always later. Can you have a shadow without the substance? You have to have substance before you can have the shadow. So what we have to do is find Christ... We have to find Christ before the shadow. And he's there, and he's actually very, very prominent and prevalent before the shadow. But it's important that we see this picture unfolding. Logically, the new covenant would be a copy or shadow of the old covenant, right? Logically, the old covenant would be copied by the new covenant. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is kind of, kind of odd that way in the sense that it sometimes teaches us things that contradict with our logic. 
he says the shadow is the old covenant and the, and the essence is the new covenant. The real is the new covenant. That is what is casting the shadow. So the Bible clearly states that this, the old covenant is a copy or a shadow of the new covenant. So really quickly, three things about the old covenant. First of all, back in chapter number 9, um, let's see here. In verse number 9, there's an, there's an intentional word used in verse number 9 to say that the old covenant is a parable. Okay, and that's under the old covenant if you're taking notes. The old covenant is a parable. Okay, it says in verse number 9 about all of this, it says, which is symbolic for this present age. Okay, symbolic is uh, the Greek word parabole, okay, which we get our English word, kind of, you can almost hear it in there, parabole, we get our English word parable from it. So the old covenant is a parable of the new covenant. So what is a parable? Well, a parable, we look at the gospels and we see parables used by Jesus, What is a parable? A parable, and you guys know it, you know the answer to the question, it's the parable is simply an earthly expression of a heavenly thing, right? Parable is a visible expression of something that is invisible. So there are truths, there are invisible truths, and the Bible, um, the writer of Hebrews plants it right in the middle of this and says this is a parable, These are parables. These are visible truths of something that is invisible, something that is not seen. They're they're tangible, fleshly, carnal, external truths that represent spiritual, invisible, heavenly, divine truths. Okay? Um, I'll just give you a few uh, other ones, right? The Lord's Supper. We take the Lord's Supper, right? Right? It is a blessing as we take the Lord's Supper, we, we identify with the union that we have with Christ, right? We're eating of his body, we're drinking of the cup, we're, we're, we're experiencing a representation of what I would say is a real spiritual truth, which is that I am truly united with Christ, right? How many of you believe that we're truly united with Christ, We're truly united with Christ in a very, very real way, and we take this parable once a month, and we picture it so that everybody can see what it, oh, that's what it looks like. We're actually partaking in, we're participants in the death of Christ and in his resurrection, and that process is a parable, a visible expression of a spiritual truth, okay? Some of you are members of this church. Being members of a local church is a parable, right? When you get saved, you become a member of the universal church, which is all believers all over the world, right? So when we get saved, when I become a part of God's family, I become a part of the church as a whole. All Christians are a part of this universal body of Christ. But guess what I get to do? I get to actually visibly express that through a parable. And what is that parable? That parable is me joining the local church. Marriage. Marriage is a parable. We are considered to be the bride of Christ. 
So what has God given us to express what it looks like to be a bride of Christ? He's given us a parable. That's why he tells us all throughout his word about the importance of a husband being a good husband and a wife being a proper wife and that relationship being a solid relationship. Why? Why is it important that a husband be a good husband and a wife be a good wife and they have a good relationship? Why is that important? Is because it is a parable. A parable can be a great expression of the real, but a parable can also be a horrible expression of the real. The, the thing about parables is that they, they, they utilize faulty ingredients, right? It's us. It's you and me par- being a parable of something that is divinely going on. There's something going on that's invisible, and God is saying to us, I want it to be visible. I don't want it to be invisible. I want it to be visible. So show the world for me, show the world for me that this is what it looks like to be the bride of Christ. This is what it looks like to be a child of God. We are that parable. So when we see this, when we see this old covenant The Lord refers to it as a parable. It is an earthly expression of a divine truth. It is a visible expression of an invisible activity. And I'm going to get into that a little bit more in detail. Remember this about parables. Parables are helpful illustrations that are impotent. Parables are helpful illustrations that are impotent. In other words, a parable cannot change you. The issue that we deal with today, especially when it comes to ceremonialism, is people have become worshipers of ceremonialism. Ceremony, the ceremonies of the Old Covenant were not meant to be worshipped. They, they were to point to the true essence, which was Christ. He is the one that we're to be worshipping, Right? The worship of those ceremonies that points to Jesus can do nothing for you. It cannot change you. It has no power in and of itself. It it is impotent to bring any transformation in your life. If you come to church and you take the Lord's Supper hoping that it's going to transform you, you have missed the purpose of the Lord's Supper. If you come to church hoping that by getting baptized you're going to be saved, you have missed the purpose of being baptized. They're both parables. Parables cannot change you, but parables are an earthly respect reflection of what can change you. This is the danger, folks, of a, of a, in a lot of religions today where people have taken parables of the true and made them into objects of worship. Churches that say you get saved by being baptized Churches that say you are more godly by taking the Lord's Supper. Churches that say that there is some power within those parables. It's like when the Lord told the guys, if you go out and sow seed on the ground, right? In Matthew 13, he told them the parable of the sowing. You know, how how many guys in that culture who decided, you know what? I want spiritual growth today, so I'm going to go out and I'm going to sow physical seeds. And I'm going to sow some corn seeds and maybe I'll grow spiritually. That's not what he meant, was it? He was teaching them a spiritual truth. He was teaching them something that was beyond the surface, something that was not visible to them. And the danger is, is that we, we adopt the physical truth without seeing the, the depth of the spiritual truth that God is trying to teach us. 
And then we cling to the parable, but, but deny the, the, what do the Colossians call it? The, the, the real, the essence. This is very, very dangerous. Is any of those things that I said, church membership, baptism, Lord's Supper, any of those things, are any of them bad? Are they bad if we worship them? Because they're not meant to be the object of our worship. They're meant to point us to the real marriage, the the real Lord's Supper, the real baptism. They're meant to point us to that which is real. So parables are great, are helpful illustrations, but they are impotent in bringing change. They're impotent in bringing salvation. They're impotent in bringing transformation. God gave us something tangible to express something invisible And this thing that's invisible is taking place in heaven right now. We'll look at that here in a moment. Turn with me, if you will, uh, to Matthew chapter 12. Just a little bit to your left, the very beginning of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 12. And um, I say those instructions and directions for myself more than for you, so I can remember where it's at in the Bible. Matthew chapter number 12. In the Bible, and I'm not, I'm not going to read all these verses um, just because of time's sake, but Matthew 12 and 13 deal with the idea of parables very, very strongly. And in Matthew 12 specifically, there was this whole Sabbath day thing where people were healing on the Sabbath, things were happening on the Sabbath that were good things, and the Pharisees were saying, you can't do those things on the Sabbath because if this is the Sabbath. There's nothing, no work is to be done on the Sabbath. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself challenges their thinking in regards to the Sabbath. And he says that good can be done on the Sabbath because because the Sabbath is for the Lord and not the Lord for the Sabbath. So he points out to them again, here here is an expression. The Sabbath is a great expression. It's something that should be followed. It should be understood. It should be, it it should be, um, uh, Fulfilling its purpose of pointing us to resting in Christ, okay? But for the Pharisees, they worshiped the Sabbath, which was simply a parable of what, of what was uh, an invisible picture of resting in Christ, which was established. Where was the, where was, where was the Sabbath established? In Genesis. When the Lord rested on the seventh day, that's the beginning of the Sabbath for us. Matthew 13, verse 13 through 17, talks about parables. What's the reason for parables? Because men can't see with their eyes. They can't understand. They don't have the ability to see and understand. In in other words, it's like I said this morning, it's like seeing the natural in everything. All we see is the natural. We, we We cannot dig underneath the natural to see the supernatural. The Word of God is a supernatural book. It tells us that it is living and active and sharper than it, it is a supernatural book. There's, there's more to it than just reading the, the surface and seeing, okay, well, that means this, so I'm going to go out and I'm going to do this. And I'm gonna... It's not about what we do. The Word of God is about expressing to us God's character. It's about introducing us to God. If we read the Bible with, with, with ourselves in mind, if we are looking to the Bible to find something about ourselves, we're going to miss the true purpose and the true meaning of the Scripture. It is meant to introduce us to God. 
When we read the word of God, we should be looking for God. God, where are you in this? What are you communicating to us about yourself? What is the deeper truth? What is the spiritual truth? What is the heavenly truth that is beyond this earthly manifestation or illustration that you're giving to us? You remember in John 20 and verse 17, when Jesus is talking to Mary just after her resurrection, and she wants, she is what? What is she doing? Do you remember in John 20? She is clinging to him, right? What does Jesus say to her? Do not cling to me. Here is the physical Jesus that is going to ascend to the Father, which is what it's all about, right? The true meaning behind all of that is a heavenly divine meaning. There's more to it, Mary, than just this physical body that's standing in front of you. And he says to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father who is in heaven. There's more. There's more significance. There's more depth. There's more riches to find Christ, to find his his true fulfillment, his true purpose as being a divine purpose, a truly salvation purpose. So it is a parable. The Old Covenant is a parable. The Old Covenant is not only called a parable in this text, it's called a copy. Okay, This is the idea of something that is placed into a mold, a real thing that is placed into a mold and then recreated. Okay, So you have the real thing and then you have it placed into a mold and it's recreated and, and it's put some, somewhere else. And it's a copy based upon that mold. And we read already in Hebrews 8 and verse 5 that these These old covenants, they serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. So it's a copy, um, and Moses was told to build the tabernacle after the pattern that was shown him on the mountain. In other words, what God did is he took a pattern of something that was already existing, right? He took a pattern of something that was already in existence, and he gave it to Moses, and he said, build it on earth. Build it on earth. It's already in existence, Build it on earth. Build a visible expression of it. Build a copy of something that's already in existence somewhere. We'll get into that in a little bit because the picture is so beautiful that the tabernacle is already, God gives him a stamp of something that's already somewhere. And all of the sacrifices are a stamp of something that's already somewhere. And we'll see what that is here in a little bit. The Old Covenant is a copy. The Old Covenant is a parable. The Old Covenant dates back to Moses at Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter number 20. Leviticus and Deuteronomy give us a lot of of the same about um, about this covenant. Okay, the, the uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy is called the second giving of the law. It's what's referred to as the second giving of the law. It was given a, a second time. So it's an invisible expression of this covenant, uh, of the new covenant. Romans 3 and verse 19, the Bible says, Now we know that whatever the law says, the old covenant says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become accountable before God. So the old covenant was given to us to help us to see our inability to keep the true covenant our inability to do what the new covenant requires of us. Okay, that's the purpose of the old covenant. Romans 5, the first five or so verses teach us that, that 
the old covenant was given to us to help us see our inability to keep the real covenant. For human beings to perform that which is real, the old covenant was given to us to show us that we couldn't do it, that no one could do it. It was meant to show us that we are sinful and we are depraved, and therefore we will never be able to enter into God's presence based upon our own merits. That's the whole purpose of the Old Covenant. Now, what about the New Covenant? The New Covenant in our text in Romans 8, 9, and 10, and also we'll read one verse in chapter 13. The New Covenant is called eternal. It is called heavenly. It is called true. And it is called a pattern. Those are the four terms that we see in the book of Hebrews that refer to the New Covenant. Okay, it's called eternal, it's called heavenly, it's called true, and it's called a pattern. All right, so let's look at each one of those for a few minutes. First of all, the new covenant is eternal. Hebrews 13 and verse 20 says, Now may the God of all, pre- of all peace who brought, again, who, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the good shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant... So the scriptures calls the new covenant an eternal covenant. So where do we see scripturally, where do we see the new covenant coming into effect? I would submit to you that in Genesis chapter number three, we see a presentation of the new covenant. The old covenant says, if you want to have peace with God, you have to do these ceremonies and sacrifices, right? The new covenant says, if you want to have peace with God, you have to come through something that he has done for you. In Genesis chapter number 3, Adam and Eve have just sinned against God. Who performs the work that brings them back into favor with God? Do they perform it or does God perform it? God does. God gives Adam and Eve grace, unmerited favor, undeserved favor. God brings them back into fellowship with himself, not by an act that they have done, but by an act that he has done. God kills animals and clothes Adam and Eve with those animals, which is a picture and a sign of, it's a symbol of Christ in the future, right? Clothed, we're clothed in Christ, right? God kills the animals in Genesis chapter number three. God puts their clothes on Adam and Eve after they've tried to clothe themselves with their own makings, right? The old covenant would have been, you clothe yourself as well as you can, and then try to come into my presence. The new covenant says, I will clothe you. The new covenant is totally a covenant of grace. So I believe, I'm submitting to you this morning for your consideration, that we see the new covenant all the way back in Genesis chapter number 3, which is way before the old covenant comes. This is why I believe you can have the old covenant being a reflection or a type or a after the pattern of the new covenant, because I believe it existed before the old covenant. Or what we would call the first covenant. Some theologians don't even refer to them as old and new. But they refer to them as, uh, I can't even think of the terms that they use, but the, the description is far less with the idea of putting one in front of the other. Genesis 3, Genesis chapter number 12, when God comes to Abraham, right, and says, I'm going to make of you a great nation, is that old covenant or new covenant? Is that grace or is that law? Is that faith or is that works? It's new covenant. 
Matter of fact, the fulfillment of that covenant, it goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to whom? Who is the, when God makes that covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter number 12, who is really the fulfillment of that covenant? Jesus Christ is. Jesus is the, the covenant that God made with Abraham thousands and thousands of years ago was, was truly meant, even in the moment that God spoke it to Abraham, it was truly meant that it would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Old covenant or new covenant? New. It's the covenant of grace. Listen, folks, everybody that's ever existed, everybody that's ever been saved upon the face of this earth has been saved by the new covenant. Everyone who's ever been saved has been saved by grace, through faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is not just applicable to the New Testament people. It's applicable to everyone who would be saved. When, when, in 2 Samuel, when God overlooks David's sin with Bathsheba, does he overlook David's sin based upon old covenant or new covenant? When God says in 2 Samuel to David, I have overlooked your sins... What is the basis of his overlooking David's sins? It's grace and mercy. The only hope that David had was grace and mercy. Think about this for a moment. Hebrews 11, which is the next chapter, right, is full of Old Testament, Old Covenant people for the purpose of proving what? Hebrews 11 is written for the purpose of proving the new covenant. Its purpose is to show the power of faith. Its purpose is to show the salvation that comes by faith through grace, or by grace through faith. It is a, an expression of this transformative power of the new covenant. And who does he use to describe it? He uses David. He uses Gideon. He uses these people in the Old Testament to describe the power of grace. We can't have time to go through Hebrews 11, but it literally is meant to show us how powerful faith is. It is meant to show us how extraordinary life can be by living a life of faith. It is meant to show us those things which are intimately connected to the new covenant. The new covenant is the covenant of grace. The Bible says in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And we say, amen, we were not, we were not, we were, we were, we were not purchased by silver and gold, but we were purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. Amen. Watch this. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreordained before the, anybody know the rest? Before the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world. What? This wasn't some new part of God's plan? This wasn't some revelation that he had when he realized how horrible the world was? No, this is a part of God's sovereign eternal plan. This is why it can be called the eternal covenant. It was established before the foundation of the world. The reality of it is, your salvation was determined before the world began. That's a hard thing to wrap our minds around, but that is extraordinary grace. That is significant grace. God did not look down the, 
the, the portal of time and see how many people would like him, he looked down the portal of time and saw that no one would like him. That's what he says in Romans 3. He looked down and saw that all men were evil, that no one did good. So you know what he did? He decided to save people for himself. He decided to jump in to our world. He decided to knock Paul off of his horse and say, you're mine, Paul. And he decided to do the same thing with us. That is extraordinary grace, isn't it? It has nothing to do with us and everything to do with him. When God chose to, to bring Abraham into his, king, into his family and into his kingdom, that was an act of grace. Abraham didn't deserve it. Abraham is, defi- is defined in Scripture as an adulterer. David was an adulterer. Solomon was an ad- These guys were not deserving of this. They were recipients of it. And I will submit to you this morning that you are as well. It's great. I will submit to you this morning that Hebrews 11 is written about a group of people in the Old Testament who had faith in the coming Messiah, and it transformed their life. And I will also submit to you that you, having that same faith, can have your life transformed by looking back to the Messiah who has already come. 1 John 2, 7 and 8 says this, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment. Well, the commandment he's writing them is actually a new commandment, if we think about it from the standpoint of being in the new covenant in the New Testament. But it's no new commandment, is it? It's an old commandment. What he says is it's been here from the beginning of time. Love your brother. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is not a new commandment. It's an old commandment. What he's saying is, is I'm just telling you it again, right? Anybody ever tell you something that they told you a long time ago and it's, now it's new, yeah. Right? Oh my, that's new. No, I told you that three weeks ago, but it's, it's new to you today. That's what he's saying to them. You've forgotten something. You've forgotten something, so I'm going to tell you it anew, but it's not new. It's old. It's almost like the idea of it saying, I'm going to tell it to you afresh. Not only that, but let's go on. The new covenant is heavenly. It is a covenant that takes place in heaven. In other words, these things are happening. As we see them on the earth, there is a, a, the real, okay, the true expression is actually in heaven. There's something taking place in heaven that is being reflected on the earth. Hebrews 8 and verse number 5 says this, they serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. Hebrews 9.24 says this, For Christ has entered not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true thing. Okay, listen to me. When Christ died, he entered into the holy place, but not the holy place on the earth. But it says this, He entered into the holy place that is in heaven. That means that there is a temple, a tabernacle in heaven with a holy place where Jesus Christ entered and there was the altar there of the mercy seat and he offered his blood on that altar. And we get to see the expression of that through the Old Testament Jewish system, but it's always meant to point us to the true, the real. He says, he goes into the heavenly place and appears before the presence of God on our behalf and he he gives his blood for that. Hebrews 10 and verse 12, the Bible says, When Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sits down at the right hand of God. A few other thoughts on this heavenly. 
The book of Revelation is a book that is clearly written about things that are happening in heaven, right? Now think about this for a moment. 29 times in the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ is referred to as the Lamb. We think of that as being earthly, right? Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God in in heaven. Jesus Christ is called the Lamb 29 times in the book of Revelation, connecting us to the Old Testament covenant. Three times in the book of Revelations, priests are mentioned. Four times in the book of Revelation, there is the incense, altar of incense mentioned as being in heaven. Twelve times in Revelation, the temple is mentioned. The Ark of the Covenant is mentioned as being in heaven. So here's what's happening. While we're seeing on this earth this physical Hebrew ceremony and sacrament or sacrifice being done, in heaven there's a similar sacrifice being done. Okay? The one that's taking place in heaven is truly eternal. It's real. This is done every year or every day because it's not If it were real, if this was real, would we have to do it every day? That's the the argument that he's making in this text. He's going to say the earthly guys do it every day, but I only did it once. Why? What's the difference? The difference is is it's it's a picture, the, the earthly unreal sacrifice, the heavenly real sacrifice. And who is that? It's Jesus. He is that heavenly sacrifice. So, so the, the picture, the old covenant, the new covenant, is a heavenly covenant. Matter of fact, our salvation is based upon a covenant that God made. Do you know who God made a covenant with that makes us savable? He made a covenant with Jesus. This is why it's a heavenly covenant. You see, Jesus Christ is the true essence of God's covenant with mankind, and we benefit from it not by fulfilling it. We benefit from it by being in the one who fulfills it. Does that make sense? We, we get all of the benefits of it by being in. We don't fulfill it. All of the sacrifices, all of that blood and guts and all of that stuff that takes place in the sacrifice system, that's Jesus, right? So we benefit from it by being in it, by being in Jesus. So it's, it's a heavenly covenant. It's a divine covenant. God makes a covenant with Jesus Christ that benefits mankind because that benefits mankind, those specifically who have faith in Christ and are in him. The new covenant is a true covenant. We see that in our text here. I won't go into detail on that. And then the new covenant is a pattern. In other words, it is a, we talked about it being kind of a stamp. It's the real thing. It is stamped. It's giving to us on the earth so that we can, um, we can reflect it, okay? We've got a visible expression of it. That's why, you know, Romans 12 says that we now are to be what? We're to be living sacrifices for the Lord, that should be what our life is. We're, that's how we reflect. That's how we, what, what I would call, illustrate, um, parable, what the Lord has done for us. So, the reason for all of this, and I'm not going to go into the, we'll look at the next two thoughts next week. The reason for all of this, folks, is that we, and the reason for the old covenant is to maximize, it is, it is literally, to maximize what it takes to enter into God's presence. 
It's to show us with a physical expression of what is required to enter God's presence. And what's interesting is you take the whole package of the old covenant and you fulfill it all. And that high priest walked in that morning after doing all of those things. John MacArthur says in his commentary that he believed that 22 sacrifices had to be made prior to the high priest entering into the Holy of Holies. 22 sacrifices to be made to become worthy to enter into God's presence. And when you enter into God's presence, you enter in unworthily. just, Just wrap your mind around that for a moment. 22 sacrifices for all things that you could even imagine, right? And yet, that high priest enters into God's presence based upon grace. It shows us the significance, the, 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 um, the, just the divine nature, the, the, the divine um, need, God interacting on man's behalf to enable us to enter into God's presence. So it's meant to, to maximize what it takes to enter. It's meant to minimize mankind so that we know, and we could all say in harmony together, I am unworthy of entering into God's presence, Right? And then here we go. Now we're on this journey. Who do we find that can make us capable of entering into God's presence? And it's Jesus. He makes it possible. This is what, when Hebrews 4 says, I can now enter into your presence boldly because I enter with the representation of Christ. I enter in Christ. I can come boldly. This is the effect. This is the impact. Nobody came into the Old Testament into the Holy of Holies boldly. But here's what he says in the New Testament. You can come boldly. Why? Because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on your behalf. It's to, this is to maximize the work of Christ. All of the sacrifices, all of the blood, all of those horrific things that we see in the Old Testament ceremonies, literally it was impossible to fulfill those things were fulfilled, was fulfilled by one person in one event for all eternity. Amen? And if you this morning will place your faith in that one person for that one event, for all eternity. The Bible says you will become a partaker, you will become a participant, you will become a benefactor of all that he has accomplished for you. Listen to me, folks. There's no greater promise in God's word than that promise. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truths that we have. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us that visible expression of your eternal covenant with us that is a gracious covenant, it's a merciful covenant, it's a um, forgiving, it's, um, it's gifting, it's all of these things that we don't deserve and we need so badly if we're going to fellowship with you. So thank you so much for this, um, this covenant. Thank you for these promises and I pray that you'll help us to to lean in on Christ, to walk in his strength, his power, and his, and, his, um, and his reputation and not our own, and to have true fellowship with you. Thank you for this time together today. May, may this day and this week be set apart for your glory. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.